This is Inglorious Trexpert, Darren Docterman. And from me and everybody at the Trexperts, we wish you a lovely holiday season and hope that you have time to spend it with your friends and family and with our wonderful swag from our various websites and our sister podcasts, Inglorious Trexperts and 430 Movie. At the Inglorious Trexperts site, that's ingloriousTrexperts.com, you can find a whole bunch of swag with our Trexperts logos and famous uh, quotes from the show and T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and spatulas. No, there's no spatulas. But uh, you can get tote bags and uh, coffee mugs, all that sort of swag that uh, you've come to uh, expect from a high-quality podcast. So take a look on ingloriousTrexperts.com and also look at 430movie.com. That's 430movie.com. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. See, I thought it was a classic femme fatale. Just so much fun. Like that Shakespearean lace in your acting. I said, Gene, what do you want from this character? I want you to just take the character and make it your own. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time on the film. On day one, the movie was already $15 million over budget. We started this movie without an ending. That's like painting yourself into a corner. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek oh, captain on our true. show. Being, as you said, number one of the, on the call sheet, it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously. I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. <laughs> <laughs> you famously wrote that script in 12 days. On one level, I wrote the script. And on another level, the story was written by everybody and sure. his brother. New episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or download the Electric Now app. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for fans with a life, is available every Friday wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission. So say we all, the complete oral history of Battlestar Galactica. And nobody does it better, the complete oral history of James Bond and Spymania. All available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. UPN Friday. Beneath the Vulcan Desert lies a treasure, not of gold, but of mind. Open your heart, and the way will become clear. Some have died to seek it. Vulcan is tearing itself apart. Some have killed to hide it. Drive Enterprise from orbit. He's going to start an interstellar war. And it's buried in the last place a Vulcan would look. A three-part Star Trek event. Star Trek Enterprise, Friday nights on UPN. Computer, I'd like some place to play some music, a little atmosphere. Specify. We got XL1. Computer ready. Enterprise. 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 Rock. Enterprise. Ships. And... Enterprise. Trips. Time. Keep going. At warp 5.1. Now. The Enterprise. Yes. The Enterprise. 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 Flops. Enterprise. Speed. And Enterprise. Read. Archer. 
Pinochet. Travis, Saval, and, of course, to Paul. Enterprise show. Extra long. Room. Is he good? From there. Do here. Enterprise. Time. It's been a long time. But my time is finally near getting up. Enterprise. Here you go. Your fleet. Permission. Delete. Space. Done. And Malcolm and Orthos and Flocks. That's the Enterprise. That's the Enterprise. That's the Enterprise. Look. Trainees, to the briefing room. This is Peter Elmstrom. I'm a screenwriter for the sci-fi television show Pandora, as well as author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, a companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, in stores now. And this is Lisa Clank. I was a writer for Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager, as well as Pandora. And I'm currently writing novels and screenplays. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. It's the holiday season here at the Briefing Room. The Spock ears are out, the Canar is flowing, and Picard is still wishing he had children in the Nexus. We wanted to give you guys a holiday-themed episode for your Briefing Room enjoyment, and we found it. We shall be doing uh, Star Trek Enterprise Season 4, Episode 8, Awakening, written by none other than returning guest to the briefing room, Mr. Andre Boranis. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, as always. Good to see you. You know, I would love to start out by asking, uh, for both of you, do you have any Star Trek-themed traditions that you do around the holiday season? (laughs) Definitely. I have some Hallmark Star Trek ornaments I enjoy hanging from my tree. Uh, a favorite is the uh, Galileo shuttlecraft with uh, Spock narrating the uh, shuttlecraft to Enterprise uh, <laughs> call sign. So that that's you know definitely some some Trek themed uh, ornaments and uh, decorations uh, that we put up at Christmas time. Amazing, Lisa. How about you? Sadly, I have no no Trek Christmas traditions. Uh, my mother's Norwegian, so we have a lot of Norwegian traditions. But uh, she's not a big sci fi person, so we don't really get into Star Trek too much. Well, clearly, I'm I'm buying you some Hallmark uh, ornaments then to send to you. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I do have a few. I, I have a James Kirk. He's seated in his chair that came out, I think, in the '90s or something. But uh, but yeah, you know, there's uh, sadly not a lot of Star Trek holiday specials out there which we can watch. <laughs> um, Star Wars. I don't know how sad that is. On us there. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. We will be watching Season 4, Episode 8, Awakening. This episode is Part 2 of the Cyrenite arc and Part 6 of 7 of the Vulcan and Dorian arc. And no, 7 of 9 will not be joining us. So let's just get things started here. Spilling it up. All right. Um, in 3, 2, 1, and engage. Previously on Enterprise. So Andre, at this point, you were on staff at Enterprise. Is that right? Oh, I was, yeah. I became a staff writer at the beginning of Enterprise and got promoted to story editor... Uh, mid-season, season one. So I think I was a co-producer uh, uh, here in season four. That's great. And however far you- so you were part of devising this whole arc? I was, yeah. And- um, Called The Forge. The Roots, the one. You know, this was another one of, uh, one of the areas that we felt that we had not really explored sufficiently. Uh, I mean, we were starting to, obviously. We were, you know, of course, dealing with the Vulcans from the very beginning. Mm-hmm their attitudes toward humans. They had a tendency to kind of look down on us and, of course, didn't believe that we were 
prepared to really get out there in the galaxy and so forth. And this was, um, you know, a story that um, we probably started kicking around early in the season when Manny Cotto was running uh, season four. And, you know, the idea of the, the sort of the, the history of the Balkans. And, uh, you know, of course, we had um, established you know, who the Vulcans are way back in the original series and extended that somewhat in Voyager with Tuvok. But here we were just kind of getting into an interesting idea about a schism between the so-called Cyrenites who are featured in this episode and uh, what, what I guess we could call the more traditional Vulcans, the ones who we are familiar with, who are, you know, solely motivated by logic and uh, highly intellectual and uh, early pioneers of starflight and star starflight and having uh, developed warp drive long before humans, of course. And so this was, uh, you know, kind of a showdown episode. In the first episode, we, we um, sort of established um, this conflict loosely based on kind of the schism in the, uh, in the church hundreds of years ago when Martin Luther started to split off from, uh, traditional Catholic teaching because in his view, the Catholic church had become corrupt. The Pope was corrupt and uh, we were playing off of similar ideas here. And I was, uh, I was that, really going to ask about that. Cause uh, yeah. for me, I, I see a lot of almost like Gnostic influence from it. You know, you have this like religious sect in a cave and you know, yes. there's the offshoot. I was going to ask if there was any influence because this is around the time that the Da Vinci code was in the popular, po popular uh, conversation. Right. So I was wondering, I guess that that's right. Yeah. I, you know, that may have been an influence. I don't know how conscious we were of, you know, of that in the sense of, you know, oh, wow, we should, you know, do something kind of like the Da Vinci Code. I don't yeah. think that ever came up in the room, but, right, you know, right. you know, whatever is in the cultural zeitgeist, you know, finds its way into these shows at one level or another. So, um, and then, you know, we'd, we'd done in, in the previous season, we'd done, you know, a season long arc with the Zindi. So the idea of doing a three parter here, you know, was certainly uh, something that everybody was open to. Yeah. And uh, I forget now who wrote episode one. Obviously, we can see all the of these Reeve in Stevens. the room. Yeah, the Reeve Stevens. Reeve Stevens, yeah. They were a great addition, you know, to season four, along with Alan Brennard and a couple of other writers. And, and uh, you know, Gar and Judy, of course, have written uh, a number of um, very important and highly successful Star Trek novels. They understood the show and canon better than any of us and rick berman was extraordinarily pleased with their work on the show so that really helped bring a lot of uh you know a lot of these you know sort of prequel elements um into the fourth season in a big way and how was it working in a, in a more serialized fashion because i know that on voyager we worked very strictly on standalone episodes was it yeah. uh, a different experience uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, of course, in season three, we had done a, you know, a season long arc with, with the Zindi. And so by then, I think we were all pretty comfortable with the idea of doing these, you know, stories that were essentially like chapters of a novel, right? Every episode is another chapter and thinking of them in those terms. Obviously, you have to pay very close attention to what came before and, and what is likely to come after. You know, we, we had a pretty good sense of where we were heading with all of this, uh, you know, when we, when we um, you know, started writing the episodes. 
But you always want to leave yourself a little room to discover things in the writing. And uh, my recollection is that this was because it was only three episodes and we had outlines for all of them before we started writing any of the scripts that, you know, we had a pretty clear idea where we were going. You know, there might have been a little bit of character nuance that, you know, cropped up in the writing. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was thrilled when I found out that Joanna Cassidy was going to be cast as Paul's mom. <laughs> I yeah. actually get the right, right dialogue for Joanna Cassidy and meet her. And that was that was uh, for me, you know, uh, a kind of a major highlight of this particular episode. You got to love the look of this uh, offshoot Vulcan cult here. They all look like yeah. rockers. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah. There she is. There's Joanna Cassidy. Yeah. A, um, if not an 80s punk look, a, an early 2000s sort of, you know, uh, kind of look for our... Uh, Cyrenite characters here. Let's stick with the eighties punk look, the early two thousands. Yeah, That's yeah. <laughs> too much, too yeah. much hair product. <laughs> yeah, thank, thanks to COVID, my hair. You know, I'm not getting it cut nearly as often as I used to, and I'm starting to look like some sort of <laughs> aging hippie. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things that um, I always found interesting about the Vulcans, and that I wanted us to explore in greater detail with Paul. If you watch the early episodes of the original Star Trek, Spock was very cold-blooded, you know? He would bark orders at times, which was a, uh, you know, I don't know, just sort of a a standard maybe trope of, uh, you know, of military uh, war movie type uh, TV and and movies. Um, As the first officer, you know, he had to, you know, sort of express some level of authority through his voice, even though he was an emotionless, allegedly emotionless person. But one of the things that I always thought was 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 cool about Spock in those early episodes is like he really was purely motivated by logic. And it was pretty cold blooded at times, you know, in, in the in the second pilot, the the Captain Kirk pilot, where no man has gone before and, you know, the Gary Lockwood character, Gary Mitchell, is, um, you know, develops these extraordinary psychic superpower sort of abilities. And Kirk's like at a loss as to what to do. It's his friend. He knows he's dangerous. What are you going to do? And Spock was just like, kill him. <laughs> kill him. There was no, you know, that was the logical choice. And there was no humanity, you know, in Spock at that time. Now, of course, it was established he was half human. And as the series progressed, he became much more the humanitarian voice of the show. He was the one who wanted to preserve life, you know, even at great risk, and had a much more enlightened, humanist, liberal sort of perspective as the show went on. And that was, I think, you know, something you could attribute to the... um, to the fact that he'd been around humans for so long. <laughs> yeah. Kirk and McCoy and the rest of the gang were rubbing off on him. And then that kind of comes to a more fuller fruition when we get into the movies, especially Star Trek II, where Spock is, you know, wise and warm and um, not at all the sort of the cold-blooded Vulcan that we saw in those early episodes of the original series. And that was the sensibility I wanted to kind of bring to Paul and the Vulcans personally. Uh, you know, when we started doing Enterprise, 
and, and tried to bring some of that into the arc here, you know, that, yeah, they, you know, the loss of life, even though they thought that was wrong and bad, was not necessarily the most important consideration, and they didn't shed tears over, uh, you know, the fact that people might get killed if it's in service of the of a greater good, as, as they, you know, saw it in terms of, you know, the, the logic of the situation. Yeah. That uh, ambassador back there was played by Gary Graham, who I think actually yeah. plays a very good Vulcan, too. I mean, what's Gary? So, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say Gary was great. He was somebody that uh, was, was in quite a few episodes, obviously, in that role and really did a terrific job every time. You must have questions. Yeah, it's tricky to play a Vulcan, I think. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to do it just robotic and and totally flat, but right. I think if you're doing it well, then the actor kind of shows you what, what the Vulcan is feeling underneath. Exactly. That, that, I think, is a very good way to put it, that, you know, even the purest Vulcan uh, is not devoid of emotion. They repress their emotions. They've trained themselves to keep that stuff under strict control, and it's considered bad taste, to use a phrase I think Spock used in one of the episodes, to, um, you know, to express any kind of emotional response. Yeah. So it's not that they don't have emotions. It's just that they keep them very, very carefully in check and, and to some extent bury them. And, you know, a point was made in the original series, I think, by McCoy when Amok time, you know, when Spock had to go back to Vulcan or die. Um, you know, it might be part of the price that they pay for this kind of emotional repression. Yeah. And it's funny to me because, you know, when you think about Roddenberry creating the original Star Trek back in the mid-60s. Spock is kind of a John Wayne character, right? You know, the yeah. rugged individualist who never shows emotion, who's always just, you know, doing the job and uh, doesn't need anybody else, right? You know, the loner. Um, there is that kind of mentality from, you know, Westerns going back to the beginning of, you know, cinema. This was the stereotype, right? Um, and uh, Roddenberry having written a number of westerns and grown up in that culture uh, I think consciously or subconsciously put a lot of that into Spock at least you know the early Spock my read on the uh, the Cyrenites here is that they are um, able to express a little more emotion than uh, the Vulcans are is that that kind of was that consciously talked about in the room it is yeah and that was something that you know it's kind of like, again, to go back to this um, analogy with uh, the early uh, Protestant church, you know, breaking away from the Catholics, wasn't that Martin Luther and the other reformers thought that religion was bad or wrong, or and they, they were Christians and they believed in Christianity. They just felt that, that the Catholic church had become corrupt and had taken things too far in some ways, you know buying these uh what, what do they call it when you're when you <laughs> pay the priest uh, oh indulgences indulgences right selling indulgences and you know um you know it was it, it, that was kind of again what we thought you know could 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 potentially play in this episode yes the teachings of surak are are, are the foundation of vulcan philosophy but you know the best ideas can be taken too far by somebody and then those ideas become you know, corrupt, if not completely untenable. Yeah. And I think that the Cyrenites are, are just trying to kind of bring some balance back to Sirach's philosophy of, of logic. And um, 
you know, in the same sense that nobody, you know, no, no Christian can, can live exactly like Jesus and be that completely selfless, selfless and, you know, and abstain from any kind of involvement with, you know, material things and so forth. I think, you know, the Cyrenites understand that no Vulcan can be, you know, completely devoted to logic, living in a cave somewhere, solving, you know, solving logic and math problems. Yeah, maybe a few can do that and they become, you know, these, you know, these uh, esthetes who live up in the caves on the forge or whatever. But, you know, practically day to day, you know, Vulcans who live in the real world, they need to have a little bit better balance, especially when every other species is is so much more emotionally uh, open, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do love that line in the previous episode, though, part one, where uh, Ambassador uh, Vloss here talks about, like, how humans are just so unpredictable. Like most species, you can right. find down to a certain emotional, uh, or not emotional, but a certain um, uh, methodology with their actions. But humans are just erratic. And I was like, that's awesome. Yes. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, that's why they, you know, had their doubts about us and why at some level I think they feared us when we developed the Warp 5 technology. Um, you know, I think part of that, it wasn't just, you know, they're sort of benign paternalistic sort of, you know, well, you guys, you got to know there's a lot of dangerous stuff out there and we wouldn't want you to get hurt. Yeah, I think that they were more concerned about themselves at some level. It's like, you know, we let these humans out there, you know, tear ass around the galaxy. Who knows what kind of trouble they're going to stir up, right? You know, that could be bad for us. That could, yeah. that could come back to, to haunt us. Yeah. So, you know, they are self-interested. And I think that that, again, it's, you know, who isn't, and it's only logical that they would be concerned about, you know, yeah. a species as kind of impulsive as as humans have demonstrated themselves to be. Yeah. Also, listeners, I apologize. I meant Ambassador Soval, not Ambassador. Ah. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of Vulcans in this episode, guys. Yes. Come me some slack. Slousy with the Vulcans. <laughs> it's actually great because it does expand the Vulcan culture. And I think there is a valid note to be given for some of earlier Star Trek where often alien races, because you're just visiting them once or twice a season, yeah. they kind of do become almost stereotypes of, you know, the Klingons are always just angry and they're right. Angry and you're like, wait a minute, how, how are you guys? Do you not have scientists then? Or yeah. worth, you know? <laughs> that's another, you know, that's another thing that, you know, you got to be careful of when you write Star Trek, I think, is... Um, you know, when Roddenberry developed the original series and other writers came up with these different alien races for us to interact with, I think it was Gene L. Kuhn, who was one of the writer-producers uh, early on, you know, great contributor to the uh, to the series. And I believe he wrote the first episode with Klingons yes. and said, hey, you know, this we should, uh, you know, have a kind of an analog to Russia and the communists here and set up a sort of a cold war between the Federation and this thing I'm calling the Klingon Empire, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a sort of a science fiction trope to, uh, you know, to, um, you know, to create these, you know, what are effectively stereotypes, but with, mm-hmm. with the intent, I think, of knocking them down. So we would find that, no, not all Klingons are, you know, these sort of, uh, you know, bloodthirsty conquerors who have this, you know, warrior mentality. And, you know, and then, of course, we saw with Worf, you know, in Star Trek, the next generation and evolution of that, 
you know, a pushback against the stereotype. And I think that that was, again, you know, when you look at the Klingons, the whatevers, the Andorians, the so-and-so, well, you, you set up these, these types in order to kind of say, well, no, you can't judge an entire culture by this thing that we're, we're suggesting is, you know, is characteristic of them as a whole. Yeah. Same thing with any culture. You know, you can't characterize German culture or French culture or Norwegian culture. You know, there are certainly elements that are common to those things that are identifiable and maybe even unique to those different cultures. But of course, in any population where you have more than a handful of people, there's going to be extraordinary diversity. For your world. I think that's what makes Star Trek so profound is that it does constantly make you um, practice empathy. Yeah, and question your and question your assumptions. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think go, going back to your earlier point or Lisa's point, I think about how you know how hard it is to kind of as an actor, human actor, to play a character like Vulcan. Um, you know, because you have to be so controlled. You don't want to come off as robotic, and I think that that's one of the things that was so great about Joanna Cassidy's performance in this episode is, you know, she really does that well. She's not overtly emotional, but man, you understand that there is a heart beating, you know, in that character. And it's always interesting when you talk about Vulcan families, you know, Spock and his father and here, you know, um, to Paul and her mother that, you know, that's such an emotional relationship that yes. you kind of see it reflected through these, you know, relatively emotionless characters yes. is always interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and even in, uh, you know, with, you know, that another classic original Star Trek episode, Journey to Babel, where we meet Spock's parents and his mother's human, his father is pure Vulcan. You sense that affection between, mm-hmm. uh, you know, between, uh, um, oh God, why am I blanking on? Sarek? Sarek, gosh, thank you. You see that affection between Sarek and Amanda, you know, even even though Sarek would, you know, there was a funny line toward the end of the show, you know, about um, Spock's mother has a little bit of a, a meltdown, and she's like, well, logic, logic, I'm sick of this logic, blah, 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 blah. And, and Spock turns to his dad, emotional, isn't she? She's always been this way. Indeed, why did you marry her? You know, at times it seemed like the logical thing to do. Well, you sense the great affection and love under that statement, right? Yeah. Although I had one. <laughs> here's my, here's my <laughs> um, twisted comedian sort of interpretation of that. At the time, it seemed the logical thing to do. Oh, Sarek knocked Amanda up. <laughs> knocked her up the spot before they got married. <laughs> Could be. That would be the logical reason to marry her. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So that's fair. I kid, I kid. Uh, <laughs> but you're not wrong. I'm not necessarily wrong. <laughs> I gotta say, I love I love the bridge. When I first stepped on the bridge of the Enterprise set, uh, I just thought, wow, they really knocked it out of the park, you know, because it has a kind of a dimensionality to it and a, a reality. So much of it was aluminum and some stainless steel. And, you know, I mean, the Voyager sets were great. Next generation sets were great. They're kind of flat, you know. They were, they were, you know, a lot of it was budgetary, of course, because they didn't have a lot of money uh, for next gen. Maybe a little more for Voyager, but still, uh, you know, these backlit, you know, plastic screens 
uh, you know, is how we mostly did the controls. But on Enterprise, we, you know, plasma TVs were, were new and fancy and futuristic at the time. And I think I had suggested, I know at the time that um, in the airline industry, you know, all the old jets were being refitted with new glass cockpits. Um, they were converting all of their analog dials and gauges, altimeters and, you know, the speedometers and so forth, uh, which were these old analog gauges. They were being converted to digital computer displays. But because all of the pilots had been trained on the, the old analog instruments, they, they basically just put the dials and gauges on computer screens, right? Which I thought was very clever and made sense. And, um, and I'd suggested doing something similar on enterprises. Uh, we've got these fancy plasma screens. Let's put old style original series graphics up on some of those screens to suggest both the past and the future. Yeah. Because enterprise, one of the big challenges of that show is it's a prequel. You know, it's 85 years or whatever before the era of Kirk and Spock. But production wise, it's 30 years ahead of, you know, the original series and so how do you split that difference how do you make it look like it's in the past of something that looks kind of primitive to uh you know today's television viewers and that was one of the little tricks that we that we uh we incorporated to to try to pull that off and it's very successful i mean i know brandon braga talked about how they had initially wanted it to be uh very submarine like and the network kind of asked them to pull back on that a little open bit, it up a like, little yeah in fact yeah rick and uh, rick and brandon toured a nuclear submarine <laughs> with uh <laughs> wow with uh with um with uh, herman uh, zimmerman our set designer uh you know to get some design cues and that's you know compared to the next gen or the voyager bridge that enterprise bridge does look more utilitarian it's smaller a little more enclosed and not quite claustrophobic the way a uh, a submarine is, but but you know, compared to the other ships, you know, a noticeable difference, right? Yeah. Well, frankly, yeah. I'd st I'd still love a prequel of for Star Trek where it is a submarine where they literally don't even have a view <laughs> screen, right? It's just yeah. like, there's something so potentially terrifying of that experience, yeah. like going yeah, out into absolutely. space and just not knowing what's out there, you know? And right. It's really cool. Yeah, I think that would be that would be pretty wild. A ritual. So you also got to play with the uh, the mind meld and Katra mythology here. Yes. It must have been kind of fun. It, it was. And uh, I, I forget who came up with that, that the idea that the mind meld was sort of, you know, outlawed, that this was something that, you know, we take for granted in the, uh, you know, the original series onward, but that this was sort of forbidden knowledge um, back in the day, right? Uh, yeah. on Vulcan. And that was an interesting twist. And um, it allowed us to explore, I think, the, um, you know, some of the things that when, when Spock first does a mind meld in the original series, you know, he describes it as a kind of a terrible intimacy. And it's something that he just he doesn't really want to do, you know, but it's like, they're, they're, you know, they're this guy, Dr. Gel Dr. Van Gelder, right? It was from an early season one episode. Uh, who was, um, you know, almost psychotic, and they had to try to get through to him and find out what 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 went wrong. How did he become like this? And uh, yeah, Spock was initially very reluctant to try to do it, and I think that that's I'm sure this was Manny Cotto's idea. You know, as I think about it, he uh, you know was a huge fan of the original series, and I think he he realized, hey, you know, that's kind of interesting. You know, we all we all sort of fantasize 
you know, about, wow, wouldn't it be great to, to be able to read somebody else's mind, but would you really want to, you know, yeah. would, wouldn't that be both a, a blessing and a curse? And uh, that was, a, I think, a, a, a cool uh, element of this, uh, of this story arc. And we'd, we'd introduced it before, I think, with the, uh, that group of Vulcans who came aboard the ship who had kind of rejected pure logic and embraced emotion. And they, they were into mind melding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Paul is still suffering a bit from like a, a botched mind meld situation. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there was a sort of a an STD kind of uh, <laughs> yeah, there, as I recall. It, you know, there's definitely some like rape allegories involved there. Because I yeah. think it's, it's also a follow up from Star Trek Six, where it's a lot yes. of fans and even creators knocked because Spock kind of like rips memories Forced out himself of, um, on her. Yeah. Of what's yeah, that name. was that was a harrowing scene. I remember, yeah. you know, yeah. when I first saw that in the theater, it's like, oh my god, that's yeah. really kind of kind of horrible. It's, it's disturbing. Yeah. It's one of those things where you're like, oh yeah, it makes sense when you're writing it, but then when you see yeah. it on the screen, you're like, oh, this is <laughs> yeah. actually kind of icky. And, right, uh, and you know, that's kind of what's to some extent going on here. You know, yeah, um, and of course, this. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, I love Scott here. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, Tapau here is played by Kara Zedeker. Um, probably mispronouncing the name. I'm sorry, but uh, yes. she comes back in yeah. Star Trek Three, and she's the one who performs the um, the, the Katra transfer from uh, yes. uh, McCoy McCoy back to Spock. Spock yeah. uh, Spock 2.0, and yeah. <laughs> it's a great little little prequel here as well, right? Which is well, exciting. you know, we wanted to Paul to be literally be Tapau from the original series from Amukton. And that was, I thought, cool idea. You know, the timeline worked out perfectly for that. This is Tapau, 85 years younger, you know, and she was the one who was chosen to kind of shepherd this first ship of crazy humans, you know, out into the galaxy. But we couldn't afford it. <laughs> Apparently the, uh, <laughs> the character royalties and what whatever would have been uh, prohibitive. So, but we were able to get her for, uh, you know, for this little three episode arc. Which means you are... Un- and by prohibitive, I'm sure that means just $20 an episode. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Hard to believe that it's that much, right? I can't, now, I've, I can't been lucky and I've been lucky enough to get a few character royalties here and there. It's like 600 bucks, you know, per episode. And that's it, you know. It's not like in perpetuity or anything. Yeah. But I don't know. It, it probably has something to do with just the ownership of the Star Trek property. And, and by then, of course, you know, there were action figures you could probably buy a Tapau doll at some point and who knows I'm sure but uh, yeah I failed a little so bit of lore was, there uh, this episode was directed by Roxanne Dawson yes uh, what was it like working with her she's amazing and I you know her directorial debut was on a, uh, a Voyager episode that um, I wrote the story for and Rob Doherty really? wrote the script Riddles yeah that was a story that I sold second or third season of Voyager. I don't think we did it till the fifth or sixth season. Just sort of sat on a shelf somewhere. And by then, I think Rob had become either a staff writer or maybe he was still writing freelance. I don't remember now, but um, he ended up writing the teleplay for it. And that was the first episode that uh, Roxanne directed. And she did a great job. And uh, she's still going strong. She's still a great... She still directs. And um, um, I think she... No, she did. She did. Uh, she did more than a few enterprises. Yeah, this Robert, is her uh, last of ten Star Trek. Oh episodes. wow! Yeah, um, and then Robert Duncan McNeil, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, started directing on on Trek, and he directed an episode of The Orville yeah. uh, for us, uh, along with Jonathan Frakes. So, yeah. Yeah, and Roxanne, she's, she's uh, fantastic. She's, I think, just you know, she did such a great job with Riddles. I knew that you know, wow. She, she obviously knows what she's doing. She loves doing this, and uh, you know she's she's going to keep working as long as she wants to. Yeah, she just did a couple episodes of Foundation, which is uh, that's right, yeah, probably the most expensive show on television right now. But it's, um, but <laughs> yeah, it's, I haven't. Uh, I've only seen the first two, and uh, you know, I worked with David Goyer on a show called Threshold years ago, mm-hmm. and oh, that's um, right. and worked with him briefly when he did Flash Forward. Uh, I just consulted on a single episode for some weird quantum mechanics problem that that David had. <laughs> I claim to understand. Sure, David. Yeah, this is how it happened. Um, anyway. Um, so this is uh, Administrator Vought, Blast right here, played by Robert yes. Forrest. Oh, uh, yeah, Robert say, Forrest. He's terrible. I'm yeah. just not a fan. He's smirking way too much for a Vulcan. I'm just like, okay, yeah, you know, back a bit here, please. Yeah, he, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't want to kind of grimace and. No, you know, so Gary does it really well here. He really you know? does. Yeah, this guy is a little bit, and frankly, could have gotten him a better wig. Yes, I'm sorry, yeah. not Robert Forrest, Robert Foxworth. I'm, I'm just screwing up all. Yes, time. Foxworth, right? <laughs> and you he know who a, else was. Sorry. John Rubenstein, I think, was also in this episode. It was the son of the, you know, brilliant 20th century pianist Arthur Rubenstein. Yeah. And I've heard that John is no slouch at the piano either, which doesn't surprise me. Yeah. He's such a character actor, too. I, I, I miss Star Trek just for seeing all the character actors that you recognize. Yeah. All yeah. sorts of things. It's great. So what is your take on the DePaul Archer relationship? I know that there are there are shippers for them as well as for <laughs> pretty much everybody else. Yeah. I, you know, I never saw them as, you know, ever hooking up romantically. Um, I know that they have a similar dynamic to Kirk and Spock. And, you know, there are certainly plenty of people who have, you know, played with that relationship in fan fiction. Um, I never quite, I never quite saw it. Yeah. Um, I liked, I liked the relationship she had with Trip and with Connor. Uh, the, the two actors I think worked really well together. Um, Jolene and you know, Connor seemed to have a, an interesting kind of a chemistry. I, you know, how would I? You know, I don't think it's, I don't think I would call, you know, Archer and Paul sort of a father daughter type relationship. But at the same time, I don't, I don't ever, I never really kind of saw them in a, as being right for each other romantically. I saw them as having yeah. a very deep friendship and a very deep bond in that regard. It's like, you know, women friends that I have who I've known for many, many years who are extremely close to me and, you know, I, you know, feel great love for, but would never think about them in a romantic context. It's kind of, I guess, how I felt about Archer into Paul just didn't yeah. seem didn't seem like the right kind of relationship for them. Wouldn't yeah, work, it, you know. It is. It is. It is. I think a, a bit of a because sh- like there are scenes in the series which does imply that like Archer's you know thinking about her sexually and then it's right, like right. there's even stuff from like 
I watched an episode from season one the other day where yeah. it's like Malcolm Reed is, is dreaming about her. And it's just <laughs> kind of this, it's this sure. like forbidden fruit of the Vulcan. Yeah. It's really, really sexy. And, and it's, it, she kind of does. Get well, like, and the idea, the idea of a challenge, you know, appeals yeah. to some men and that, you know, is maybe part of the dynamic there. I'm not saying that Archer never thought about it or even that Duvall never thought about it. I just don't see either one of them ever acting on it. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. I did like, you know, Mike Sussman wrote one of the, one of the, uh, I think most highly regarded episodes of um, Enterprise Twilight, where, uh, you know, where uh, Captain Archer is, you know, basically starting to experience a kind of dementia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and T'Pol has a very tender relationship with him as a kind of a caretaker, you know. Mm-hmm. That that felt very real to me. Yeah. We can't wait any longer. I really expected this guy to be revealed to be a Romulan or something by the end of the year. <laughs> he's not. He, he's working with Romulans, yeah. but he's not right. actually Romulan himself. Yeah, well, maybe, like, they, man, maybe they rubbed off on him. I guess. <laughs> Could be he's got so a little Rom- Romulan blood in those green veins. Yeah. I like the Vulcan ships. I think those are cool looking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very interesting design. Um, those, the, the, um, the ring drive. And that's something that this is an interesting little weird aside. There were some early drawings that Matt Jeffries did, like in 1964, when they were getting ready to shoot the original pilot, the cage of um, of the Enterprise, that featured like a big ring. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that design element idea came from because you know it was 20 some odd years later before this guy, a physicist, a Mexican physicist named uh, Miguel Alcubierre, came up with a, an approach to potentially creating a real warp drive that didn't violate any laws of physics, was consistent with Einstein's general theory of relativity, that basically involved you know compressing space in front of the ship and expanding it behind the ship. And it used a ring of negative matter in order to accomplish this some arcane way. And it's like, wow, that's kind of uncanny mm. uh, that Matt Jeffries would have come up with this weird. And, and I, you know, I had lunch with him once, um, not long before he died mm. and uh, never got the chance to ask him the question, where did you come up with that? <laughs> I don't know that I was necessarily even aware of it at the time that, you know, I happened to have lunch in the Paramount commissary, but uh but it's yeah, it's cool. It's it's a cool looking design. I was doing some research for a project the other day and discovered that even the sonic shower is kind of based on an abandoned concept from a NASA brainstorming. Like someone had written a paper yeah. about how like there's oh, like wow. a yeah. super low water use yeah. shower that would use sound right. waves to kind of like yeah. jigger all yeah. the dirt off of you. And I was right. like, That's fascinating. Yeah. Don't don't forget your earplugs. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> But apparently would, the designs were all there. It was just like NASA yeah. funding kind of dissipated in the 70s. Yeah. So they, they had to abandon it. Yeah. Boy, I got to say, we got we got our money money's worth out of all of these cave sets over the years. <laughs> yeah. Those go way back. They they I guess they go back to next gen, right? And sure. I don't remember now. Lisa, you might remember the cave sets on Voyager. We had some standing cave sets, right? And one yeah, of those stages. Stage they, 16, I think. Yeah, and I think we must have kept those for Enterprise and modified. I can't imagine them, why they would have taken them down. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure they were they were the same same set elements. They might have been rearranged, and we might have added something and you know dressed them differently or whatever. But um, 
you know, that was, uh, man, 20 years, 20, 20 years worth of spelunking. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, season four is, is notorious for both being probably the best season of Enterprise, but also the, the least expensive season of Enterprise, where it's, yes. the budget was like slashed by, I think, 60% or something per episode. And you're left mm-hmm. with, and, and Manny Cotto had the great idea, the great inspiration of doing a series of, of two to three part storylines. So you could yes. build a single set, use it over right. three parts. Yes. And thus, the per episode cost of production design would go down drastically. And you talk a little bit about just writing for season four, knowing that you're writing even in this episode, it's part two of three, right? And how you yeah. still structure that, how you brainstorm that in the, in the room. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we definitely were conscious of the fact that we needed to amortize the costs, you know, over multiple episodes in order to make our nut, <laughs> in order to keep this thing. And, and you know, we clearly... We're, we're hoping for a season five and uh, we you know part of the calculus there is man if we can bring in season four on budget or under budget and it's successful and people respond to it much better chance of of, of having a, a fifth season so clearly that you know that that's that's a reality on any tv show and in our particular you know circumstance in season four of the enterprise we're that much more aware of it and you know making sure that we didn't go too crazy and you know when you get right down to it i mean there is a lot that you can do on standing sets there's a lot that you can do and you know these cave sets which are easy to light and to decorate you know and uh, relatively speaking we have some nice vfx here we had some nice vfx at the top of this episode even some of that stuff you know had been pre-built right you know with the vfx stuff when you when you see a for example a you know, a cityscape, planetary exterior type thing. You know, that that costs money. That's also mm-hmm. a set. Uh, you know, I worked right? a few years after we finished Enterprise. Um, I did a season of a show called Tron Uprising for Disney, which was an animated series. And, um, you know, my first thought, of course, getting involved in that was, wow, sky's the limit. You know, we yep. can imagine anything, you know, and it's like, yep. no. No, you really want the uh, <laughs> you want the. We've got a garage set where the main characters hang out, and that's our standing set, you know, and one or two other things, and that cost a hell of a lot of money to build. As many scenes as you can, as you can write in that garage, great. Whenever we create a new environment, that's a hell of a lot of design time and rendering and all the rest of it, you know. So it's no different in animation than it is in. Uh, you know, in live television when it comes to the amount of money, you know, that is available for building new sets. And mm-hmm. we had a certain number of, um, you know, VFX shots we could do per episode. And, you know, in virtually every production meeting, you know, we'd sit down, we'd go through scene by scene. Oh, you've got, looks like you've got 14 phaser shots. And, you know, in scene 22 here, can we cut that down to six? Yeah. It saves you 2000 bucks per shot. You know? Yeah. And that's just what you got to do. But, you know, the other thing that actually saved us quite a bit of time and money in season four is season four was the first episode that we shot uh, digital, not on film. So there were no film canisters. There was no film processing cost. Uh, We had to buy, you know, obviously we bought digital backs for our cameras, whatever was, you know, the red camera, whatever was the thing that people were using back then. And, uh, you know, and, and, um, 
and hard drives. And we probably saved fifty to $100,000 per episode just by transitioning from film to digital. It's, yeah. not, just the, it's not just the cost of film uh, and processing the film. It's also, you probably save half an hour or more a day not having to bother to swap out film canisters and stuff, you know, dealing with all of that. So that was, that was, that was a big, that was a big change. Yeah. And it's, uh, today, obviously I think there isn't a show out there that's shot on film anymore. So no, it's great. No. It also helped to guarantee that enterprise would get a HD release, which is something yes. that deep space nine and Voyager right. likely won't have happened for a long time just because of the way yeah. it was edited. And it's right. Uh, so, uh, and it looks great, you know. It's we never built a physical model of the Enterprise ship. Yeah. Lisa probably remembers when we, uh, you know, there's a beautiful six-foot fiberglass model of the Starship Voyager that was yeah. an amazing thing to, to behold. Season four or five or whatever, that thing got put in the box and was never photographed again for, yeah. you know, the show. Uh, we used stock footage of that of that ship. Uh, in subsequent episodes, but every new shot of the Voyager from season five on, maybe pure CGI. You know, they scanned the ship with one of the 3D wand scanners to get the basic outlines and then rendered it. And, you know, that was the point at which it became financially viable to do VFX digitally as opposed to with models and, you know, the usual, um, you know, the usual techniques that that uh you know we were doing up until that time yeah yeah it's really i mean we just hit the to be continued moment and it's ah. uh it's such so, it's so great because you really do get just a series of of movies in this season as yeah. opposed to episodes and i really wish like low budget shows would take this model even more because like there's a grandeur to the season that i don't even think like when the show was had at its most high budget like you had yeah. that that level of just like yeah oh, God, thanks awesome <laughs> yeah you know we'd always you know conceived of star trek you know from the get-go of course it was episodic television and there was you know rarely did episodic shows um um you know venture into that you know two-part or even you know um you know, kind of format, but it became more and more common as time went on. And, and uh, now, of course, you know, the pendulum has swung and serialized storytelling is, uh, you know, is far more common probably than episodic these days, right? Yeah. But I hear the new uh, the new Star Trek series with the Captain Pike is supposed to be more of an episodic model. Oh, yeah? That's what I've heard. We'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> You know, one other little thing that I, uh, you know, that I remember from this episode, we had that, we had that area called the Forge, and I think that that must have come from a Star Trek novel, maybe even a um, Gar and Judy novel. And really? I wrote, I'm sorry, R really? Yeah, I think so. I think so because I wrote about the Forge in 1999 for a Star Trek book that I contributed to, I came up with an idea after I wrote this book, Star Trek Science Logs, that came out in 1997 or 8. It was published by Pocket Books. And um, I pitched an idea to Margaret Clark, my editor there, about doing a kind of a geography of the Star Trek um, universe planets, you know, the ones that, you know, Vulcan and, you know, all the different ones that we know from, from the shows 
she liked that idea and I started outlining it and I was just going to write it up as a kind of a dry, you know, the geology, the biology, the flora and fauna, you know, blah, 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 what start is orbit, you know, you know. And then Margaret said, you know, I think you should do this more like a National Geographic, you know, <laughs> approach to the planets of Star Trek. I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. She says, I want you to write about them in the first person. I'm like, what? She said, well, you know, National Geographic, all those articles are written in the first person. I'm like, really? No, I, I guess you're right. I hadn't really thought about it. And then I went back, looked at some old National Geographics. Yeah, they're all written in the first person. Hmm. And I had to wrap my head around this idea of, you know, okay, I'm going to talk about Vulcan as if I'm on Vulcan and walking around and beating Vulcans. She said, yeah. <laughs> so I did that and I wrote, I wrote, uh, and you know, a piece about Vulcan. It's going to be the kickoff piece for the book. And I talked about the forge and I talked about the narrator who grew up coincidentally in Southern Arizona, <laughs> thought he could handle the <laughs> desert. He was going to do this hike across the forge and rapidly discovered that, no, that's a whole different ball of wax. And uh, it turned out really well. And I talk about the forge and I'm sure I, that must've come from a book uh, like one of Gar and Judy's books about, you know, the Federation, you know, the origins of the Federation. I don't think I made it up. And, and I meant to try to research this a little bit more before our meeting today, but I, I went back and reread that piece and there's no indication in it of how the forge came to be part of the story, you know? So, um, that's something that it's an assignment for the listener. See if you can <laughs> find out the origins of the forge on Vulcan. And, you know, it's in the foothills of Mount Salea, which was obviously established in uh, the original series movies. But uh, the forge, I don't think, was mentioned in any of the movies. So, no, I don't think so. Um, yeah, that's amazing, though. I, I, you know, I think we might actually have to have you back on to talk about part one and part three. I mean, that's <laughs> a thrilling, <laughs> thrilling uh, three-parter here, and yeah. I, I think it's uh, it would be a great little piece to to have some commentary for all three of them. Oh, sure, I'd be happy to do it. And uh, you know, you should get in touch with Sussman and Manny Cotto yeah. and some of those other guys because you know they obviously had a big role. And Gar and Judy, you know. It'd be amazing to talk to about these because they really have the the history and the lore and you know the experience of having written all those Star Trek novels. I um, I haven't I haven't talked to them in several years. I think they're back in Canada. Mm. Alan Brennert, um, I think, is probably regularly in touch with them. He's somebody else. He's someone you should talk to about season four of Enterprise as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd love to get their contact information from you. I'll be happy to do it. Just shoot me an email reminder. Yeah, okay. not not on the air, guys. Not on the air. Alan <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Brennard's telephone number. Here's <laughs> his social security number too. It's <laughs> uh, but I know you have uh, the Orville coming out here in March. Um, yes. Is there anything else you're working on right now? Yes, in fact, we just finished shooting. I, I, I was until uh, around the end of October living in Montreal, Canada, for several months. Wow. I went out there in early July. Uh, I'm a writer and executive producer on a new show that will be on Peacock next year called The End is Nigh mm. with Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> this is something that Seth MacFarlane cooked up with Bill and Brannon. And um, they hired me as one of the writers. It's six episodes, six one-hour episodes. And we look at a potential end-of-the-world scenario in each episode and how science can either save us from the disasters that unfold or at least mitigate their their uh, consequences and bill is the host and um and it's pretty fun and we shot it up in montreal because we could afford to do it there and that was the only place 
that we could find some studio space. You know, Vancouver was booked and Toronto was booked and every, every place else we looked was booked. There was wow. some brief talk about shooting it in South Africa, which uh, I'm glad we didn't because the COVID thing, you know, we, we, there was still a lot of uncertainty about it back when we were conceiving this. We started in February, actually, mm. writing these shows. At any rate, uh, yeah, we shot that in uh, in Montreal, finished shooting in October. We're in post-production on that. And it will start airing either in June or July on Peacock. So okay. six episodes. The end is nigh. <laughs> and other than that, it's like, I got nothing. So I don't know. If, <laughs> I, don't think, uh, I don't think there's going to be a season four of the Orville anytime soon. I mean, it's not impossible, but I know... Um, Seth is working on some other projects for now, and and we're, we've still got a lot of posts to do on the Orville. So I'm involved in post on that, and on the end is nigh. But you know that's a minimal amount of effort required on my part. So um, so yeah, that's that's all I got. And I'm working on a book about the Orville that will hopefully be out oh, nice. later next year. That's great. So um, yeah, that's pretty yeah. much it for me. I'm so sure Orville's quite a expensive show, and it's uh, it's it looks, um, it looks fantastic. So it's, I'll tell you, you know, I saw John Kassar, or he and he and Seth directed all of the episodes. John is a great guy, great director, and uh, we did some EPKs, these electronic press kit things, a couple of weeks ago. And I was interviewed after John, and I hadn't seen him in almost a year, probably. And uh, we were talking, and uh, you know, we're going to be on Hulu this year. And um, because we made the move to Hulu and, and uh, for first run instead of uh, Fox, no time limits. No con- you know, on Fox, you know, we had to cut every episode to 42 minutes and 18 seconds or whatever the, you know, the running time is. When Seth was you know, talking to Hulu about you know, doing the third season for them, so, you know, how long, how long, what's, you know, what's like the maximum episode length that you guys, you know, tend to, tend to shoot for. Yeah. I don't know. What do you, what do you want to do? <laughs> well, what, if we did 50, 55 minutes. Would that be okay? And sure. Hour, yeah, whatever you want to do. <laughs> and I saw John and I was doing a VFX review, like the week before I saw John for the CPK thing. And it was an episode that Brandon and I had written first one of the season. And I saw a main title card, and the running time was an hour and five minutes. And I asked our VFX supervisor, Brandon Fayez, Brandon, man, this must be one of the longer episodes. No, it's actually a little short. <laughs> wow. The average running time, I think, for each, we did 10 episodes of the Orville for season three. The average running time is like an hour and eight minutes, hour 10. And wow. when I saw John, he said, you know, one of them is 87 minutes. Awesome. And uh, it's like a movie and it's the big kind of season finale. And he said that he added up the running times of the 10 episodes we did for Hulu and divided it, <laughs> divided that number by, you know, the 42 minutes and change we got on Fox, the equivalent of 16 episodes. Wow. wow. So yeah, we, we spent a lot of money and, um, and we, we, you know, again, the, the Hulu was very accommodating. They're like, you know, Oh, you want to do a 20 minute space battle? Okay. You know, <laughs> we're gonna post really... that in 4k yeah. yeah you know might be up to 8k by the time this thing airs okay <laughs> so yeah it's it's what i've seen is you know spectacular looks That's great fantastic. i think the scripts are really good and you know seth and the gang are great so we're, we're very excited about it i think the fans are, are going to really enjoy it a lot of interesting fun episodes big surprises 
So and who yeah. now streams in 4K too? So you can uh, it'll be on exactly. 4K. It will be at least in 4K. So that's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Um, well, and uh, can fans reach out to you on social media? Um. I feel like I always ask you that, and you're always like, "No." <laughs> I have a website. I have a website. Website skybynightproductions.com. That's my my little you know loan out company. But I, I don't really use it. I don't know that anybody really looks at it. You'll see some cat pictures and you know, some of my credits, and that's about it. I don't do Twitter or any of that stuff. So I, I'm sorry to say I don't really have. I, I guess I should, but I don't. I need to I need to keep a note of this so I don't make a no. That's okay. Every time I ask, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if that hey, changes, well, I'll let you know. Yes, you'll be the first to know, listeners. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much again for joining us here. This oh, it's a always a pleasure, and yeah, you know, I'd be happy to do uh, you know the other two parts of this, uh, you know, this uh, arc, this three episode arc, and and you know, I will I will get Lisa contact info for like Alan and Manny and, uh, and Mike Sussman. And, uh, Great. you know, I, I, I suspect they'd be thrilled to be involved and talk about it. It's, it's amazing. It's been over 15 years now since we wrote these episodes for season four. Yeah. yeah. You know, Lisa, that's something we should do. Like rather than doing an episode episode, we should really treat them like a movie and just have like a big round table on. That'd be a lot of fun. That would be really cool. Um, yeah, be cool. Of course, coordinate everyone's schedules might be an issue. Too, <laughs> y'all are super busy, but yeah. um, but anyway. So, listeners out there, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us uh, at on Twitter at Inglorious Trek and on Facebook and Instagram at Inglorious Trek Experts. Uh, we'd like to thank our sound engineer Mark Rivera, as well as his mentor Bill Ritter, and everyone at Electric Entertainment, including Dean Devlin, Mark A. Altman, who are our executive producers, and producer Natalie Muscali. Um, so for Lisa Clank and myself, we'd like to say happy holidays, whatever holiday you happen to participate in. And uh, we'll say the briefing room until next time. The briefing room is now closed. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away is the bluebird Here to stay is a new bird He sings a love song as we go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman And pretend that he is Parson Brown He'd say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town. Later on, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire. To face unafraid the plans that we've made, walking in a winter wonderland. snowman and pretend that he's a circus clown we'll have lots of fun with mr snowman until the other kids knock him down when it snows ain't it thrilling though your nose gets a chilling we'll frolic and play the eskimo way 
Walking in a winter wonderland To face unafraid the plans that we've made Walking in a winter wonderland Walking in a winter wonderland This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.